0: Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Not too many of you arrived this morning wondering how to conduct yourselves on the battlefield. My Tuesday Bible study meets to get us all ready for Sunday morning and One of the participants asked last Tuesday, what's all this about war? And I looked around, and I seemed to be the only person under 60. There were several over 90. And I thought, yeah, we don't look like that formidable a fighting force, I admit. Scripture is full of things we wouldn't have put there. That's sort of the point. There are encouraging verses in the Bible, things you would put in needlepoint or on a cat poster. But then there are also lists and censuses and stories that couldn't get a PG-13 rating and genealogies of strangers. When we read the Bible, we're drawn into a story that's not our own and that we couldn't have invented. That's why we're doing this series on strange texts here at TEMC. Most of the stories you hear out there about what life is for are pretty poor. The implicit claim that you're only as valuable as your purchasing power, that there is no more important story than the one you invent for yourself. Those are consumerist stories, and they're the way to despair. Scripture, for all its weirdness, for all its objectionable things, is actually The way to life. In our story for today, the Israelites are about to cross over into the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness 40 years, directionless. The previous generation that escaped Egypt has almost all died off, and a new generation has risen, and they are on the edge of glory, about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. The only problem is there are already people In the Promised Land. It will be a struggle, but God will give Israel the land. The story you heard is full of references to the Exodus. It is really God who will fight. Israel has only to stand still. One of the chief criticisms of the Bible that you'll hear is that it's so bloody. Folks especially say this about the Old Testament. It's just so warlike and tribalistic. This is a valid concern. God's people have taken stories like the one you heard today and launched crusades with them. The conquest of the Americas. That's one reason churches like ours usually don't read stories like this. How do they help us live better lives? Here's the problem. If we ignore stories like that, people still find them. And then they're scandalized by them and don't know how to read them. Now, I worry about the criticism just a little. Most human beings, for most of history, have had to face violence in their immediate neighborhood. We don't, and that's a gift, but it's a rarity. So maybe we shouldn't condemn our ancestors so quickly, whose lives were very different. The modern era promised that it would usher in peace, Instead of tribes, we'll have nation states. You'll call that one France or Germany or Bulgaria or whatever. The problem is those nation states were responsible for more violence in the 20th century than any previous century combined. We human beings are a violent lot. Scripture didn't invent that, but it reflects that, and it tells Israel how to conduct herself in the midst of it. Because Israel is supposed to be different than its neighbors. Better. A light in the darkness, salt in the food. And this story reflects that difference. Sure, all peoples fight, but Israel fights differently. For example, they're outnumbered. In the first verse that Barb read, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, and an army larger than your own, do not fear. Horses and chariots are the ancient equivalent of tanks and missiles. Anyone who can help it, seeing a larger and better equipped army, doesn't fight that day. But Israel remembers defeating Pharaoh with no army at all. God did it with the sea. Before the battle, it's the priests who address the people, not any military officers, I'm pretty sure that before the Canadian forces deploy, I'm not the guy you want addressing the troops on strategy. But there it is in Deuteronomy. And we're given four classes of people who don't have to fight at all. If you've completed a house, but haven't lived in it, go home. If you've gotten engaged, but aren't yet married, go home. If you've planted a vineyard, but haven't tasted the fruit, go home. I'm imagining this last one applies to every soldier ever. If you're afraid, go home. I am sure they do not teach this at the Royal Military College in Kingston, how to shrink your army on the eve of battle when you're already outnumbered and outclassed technologically. But it's the Lord who fights, not us. To make that clear, let's reduce our fighting capacity. Otherwise, people might think the battle is up to us and not up to God. A Teacher of mine is well known for being a Christian pacifist. Real pacifists are hard to find. People who will do no violence for any reason, not even to protect a weaker neighbor. The easiest way to learn nonviolence is to tell people that you're a pacifist because they immediately want to fight with you. What do you mean? What about Hitler? What are you saying my grandparents were wrong? It's good practice for how not to retaliate. He points out the deck is stacked against him. Find me a good novel or a good movie about peace. You can't do it. Warfare is the theater for our imagination about things like courage and cunning and romance. I think we all long for the spirit of the greatest generation because that age sacrificed for the broader society. What defines our life since then? Going to the mall? Being on your phone? Anyway, my friend's a pacifist because of Jesus, who commands us to love enemies and to return peace for violence instead of harm. And lots of Christians in history have done likewise. Every monk, nun, and priest in the history of the church is also trying to be a pacifist, even if their kings or countries were not. Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. changed history with nonviolent resistance. Quakers and Mennonites are whole denominations devoted to nonviolence. Now, if you're going to be committed to that, you have to live in places no one else wants to be. That's the deal. I probably wouldn't exist without World War II. Likely, like a lot of y'all, my grandparents rushed to the altar as teenagers to get married before the man deployed. And then he came home four years later and they realized, oh, we were strangers then, we're worse strangers now, and the marriage didn't last. Few of us would be here without someone in our family tree willing to fight. And that's why we put their names on the walls. But look what this text does. It hymns in violence. It hedges it, places limits on it. When you fight, offer terms of peace first. As Churchill said, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. I think that sounds better with his English accent than with my Southern one. Talk until everyone gets bored and you go home. That's been Canadian foreign policy since there was Canada. Then there's this gem of an ecological note, this tenderness at the end of the passage. Did you notice it? Verses 19 to 20. If you besiege a town, making war against it, you must not destroy its trees by wielding an axe. You may take food from them, but you must not cut them down. Are trees in the field human beings that you should lay siege to them? You may destroy only trees that do not produce food. You may cut them down for use in building siege works against the town that makes war with you until it falls. Defend the trees. Don't cut down the fruit-bearing trees. The next generation needs to eat. General Sherman in the U.S. Civil War famously said, war is hell. You can't refine it. The thing is, Sherman was wrong. You can forbid the cutting of fruit trees, as happens in Scripture. Sherman himself didn't believe it. Even though he burned and pillaged his way through the South, he didn't murder civilians. He didn't take slaves. He liberated them. Any good soldier knows how you conduct yourself in war is extremely important. Because you have deadly force at your command, you have to know that it's not murder that you're using it for. My pacifist teacher points out that when we called it the war on terror, we honored Osama bin Laden. We called him a warrior, a soldier. He was not. He was a murderer. Language matters. But here's something more troubling in the passage. Interpreters call it one of the most frightening in the Bible. It's called the ban. When Israelites face the people who live in the land, they're to give no mercy Destroy them all. All the people, all the livestock, burn the spoils. This defies ancient warfare. In the ancient world, you went to war to take people's stuff, but there's no spoils after the ban. It's all burned up as an offering to God. We should pause here because this is a horror. But it may not ever have actually happened. Scripture lists the people to be so treated. Um, By the way, just so you know, if I'm unhappy with you, I'll put you on the reading list for texts like this morning. You're welcome, Barb. The Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the so-and-soites, and the Canaanites. Israel is supposed to deal with these folks that way. Here's the thing. They all survived. DNA tests show that the Israelites were basically the same as their neighbors, Israel has to go on dealing with them. In fact, the Bible has frequent commands. Don't marry them. Don't make covenant with them. Uh, why do we need those commands if they don't exist anymore? The point is, they do, and Israel has to deal with them as neighbors. Scripture's winking at us, telling us to read deeper. So for example, Deuteronomy chapter 7. "'When the Lord your God gives them over to you "'and you defeat them, you must utterly destroy them. "'Make no covenant with them. "'Do not intermarry with them.'" Wait a minute, why are you telling us not to make covenant or intermarry someone who we just annihilated? The point is, that didn't happen. Often the Bible will say things like, "'And Israel killed all the Amalekites.'" End of chapter, next chapter. "'The Amalekites came up for battle. (laughs) "'Wait a minute, one verse ago they didn't exist anymore.'" they're still there. The language is exaggerated. Like when a sports team wins and says, "Hey, we killed y'all." And their opponent says, "No, we're we're still here. In fact, let's play again." Remember most of the Bible is written by and treasured by defeated people, mistreated people, conquered people. They flex when they write. Remember a time when we destroyed all our enemies, killed everyone? the unspoken part, but we're the ones who are destroyed now, annihilated by Assyria, carted off into exile by Babylon, oppressed by the Romans. It's said so often that we're tempted to think it's true that history is written by the victors, but it's not true. The Bible is written by conquered people. Never forget that. And I wonder if you remember any other scary lists of peoples elsewhere in Scripture. We recently celebrated Pentecost. Jews from all nations gather at Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit descends. And all of them hear about the resurrection in their own mother tongue. The disciples miraculously know how to speak languages they never learned. And so they all say this together, like a responsive reading in the bulletin. We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya with Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. See, Barb, it could be worse. They all hear about Jesus' resurrection in the language their mom sang them to sleep in. That's how you conquer a people by the Holy Spirit's power of language. They're not murdered. To read Deuteronomy carefully, they never were. They're won over by Jesus' death and resurrection. Israel is chosen, elected by God, singled out, made a teacher's pet. Any of y'all remember being a teacher's pet? It's not very much fun being a teacher's pet, but teachers always choose them. Israel is chosen to bless all the other nations including us here today. Not many of us here today are Jewish, one or two. Some are married to someone Jewish or have a Jewish child. Bless y'all. Most of us benefit from Israel's election through faith in Jesus Christ. So my own ancestors were Scottish and Welsh and German and French, pagans, all of them, until they were conquered by Jesus' resurrection, born again not murdered or banned. A friend of mine is a native elder, grew up with the glories and pains of the Cree people. He had a sudden conversion to Christian faith. He woke up on his kitchen floor in the middle of the night, still drunk, and saw Jesus in his kitchen summoning him to a better life. He gave up on alcohol in that instant. has never touched it since. Most of us need some support to walk away from substances. But a vision of Jesus would probably get it done. He cut his hair short. He burned all his vinyl records. He became a 70s hippie Jesus person. And now he's a little older. He's grown his hair long again. He's reacquainted himself with Cree stories and customs alongside his hippie Jesus culture. And like most old hippies, he sold out. He's got a mortgage now. It happens. Be gentle with yourself. Now, some of his enemies he annihilated, like alcohol. You can't play around with that stuff. But others he made friends with, like his Cree culture, like his newly rebuilt record collection. Becoming wise in Christ is figuring out what to annihilate. Pornography, racism, hatred. You can't play footsie with those things. They have to go altogether. But other things are more tricky, like entertainment or ambition or the difficult neighbor or family member. We don't get rid of those. We just grow in wisdom about how to treat them well. We don't burn them. We treat them like Israel's neighbors. And when you listen to Jesus, that means forgiving them, becoming a new people with them, winning them over. You've heard a famous Arabic word from our media, jihad. We know it refers to holy war, but in Arabic, it just means struggle. And before it refers to any outward war, it refers to inward, spiritual struggle. Seeking victory over pride, envy, jealousy. We actually use warfare language in the same way in English. The war on drugs or the war on crime or whatever. I actually get a little nervous about that use of war language. It usually means a politician is looking for more money. I mean, who argues on behalf of terror or crime or whatever? Here's a bigger struggle for me. How come when I look at alumni journals from my high school or college or graduate school, I put them down and feel worse? I mean, I've accomplished some stuff, I managed to convince y'all to hire me, after all. But I look right for my classmates and the people I recognize, and I'm like, man, they got that. That happened for them. And I feel miserable. Everyone who's achieved anything in their line of work knows somebody adjacent to them who's achieved more. And that's why when you go on Facebook, you feel miserable. Images of people's touched up happiness. My friends who are more successful in their fields feel the same. We all seethe with jealousy. I once heard the great Jeremy Lynn speak in Vancouver. He said he'd played basketball for Michael Jordan, with Kobe Bryant, and against LeBron James. And he said, you know what these three greats all have in common? They're haunted by the championships they almost won and did not. These are three of the greatest who've ever plied their trade. Lynn's point was that without Jesus, you always feel miserable. The thing is, even with Jesus, we compare. Someone wise said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's a struggle, a war, a jihad, a crusade not to be dominated by envy but to take joy in someone else's accomplishments. See, in one way ambition is good. It fires any kind of accomplishment. It's also poison in the wrong amounts. Keeps you perennially unsatisfied. Facebook made 85 billion dollars in the last year that that information is available. We've got quite a fight on our hands, fellow soldiers. I mentioned the demographic of my Bible study, lots of gray heads, me a gray beard, not too much youth, but raging grannies have changed the world before, and they can again. I know we're a little embarrassed about this now, but the temperance movement was led by church ladies. It was about the time women got the right to vote, the 1920s. It's not hard to show the alcohol, the alcohol does so much damage. And so women, newly armed with the vote, wanted their husbands, their sons, their fathers home and not drinking up their paycheck and coming home and being abusive. And their legislators said, yes, ma'am. Now, prohibition didn't work, sure. But I'm just saying, don't underestimate the warrior class of church ladies. In the black church, it's often older women who not only beautify the church... Do ministries of mercy outside it, but they also raise grandchildren, other people's and their own. They make money for whole households. A teacher of mine was done with raising children. He and his wife were contemplating empty nesthood, and their 16 year old got pregnant. And they said, Well, we've done this before. Let's load up on diapers and formula and wet wipes. And off they went for a new round of parenting. People are aging differently now. It's not that unusual to know people who are north of 100. We've got 80-year-olds running marathons. I'm just saying, don't underestimate a room full of gray hair. It can change the world. They might not look like it, but they're warriors of a different sort. Let me finish with Jesus. Good place to start. Good place to finish. Good place to remain in the middle. He's the center of our Bible. He's the one who shows us how to read it. And he's the one who's utterly cut off, subject to the ban, shown no mercy. All these nations with their hard-to-pronounce names gang up and destroy him, leaving nothing behind. But his grave is not his end. He conquers by being conquered. And now he draws all people to himself, not with violence, but with persuasion and love. He is the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And there is nothing harsh in Him. So yes, there is still conquest for us. There's still struggle against everything violent, harsh, comparative, and unkind. And one day, Jesus will have the victory over all of it. Amen.
1: We come before you, Lord, with our prayers as a community and as individuals. It has been a difficult week. Across Canada, the fires were burning. There has been haze east to west, north to south, stretching down the continent. The red sun and moon, announcements to stay indoors and wear our masks if we went outside made it impossible for people to deny what was happening, and we were frightened. Even as many fires continue, we thank you for the rain that is helping, for the many first responders, and all those volunteers who continue to assist with food, shelter, clothing, and water. We remember other disasters from around the world, the aftermath of the devastating train crash in India, The extreme flooding in Ukraine, with the breaching of the Kakovka Dam and all the fallout that it's bringing to people, animals, homes, livelihoods. We pray for the people of Ukraine, Lord, now in the 15th month of the invasion. We acknowledge that sometimes the big issues just seem too big. And while instant communication brings news of disasters too quickly, It also brings other news, and we can seize on and be grateful for good news, especially this week, the rescue of four children in the jungles of Colombia. And it gives us hope that there are humans who still think it's worthwhile to expend so many resources to find four small human beings. And we know that somehow you were with the children, and you were with all those searching, and we thank you. We pray for our own province and city. We continue to pray for wisdom in making the decision of who to vote for as new mayor. We pray for our own church, for new initiatives and ongoing and important ministries. We pray for those among us who are ill, injured, dying, grieving. Join our hearts to work together to further your mission and help us discern as a community what that is. We also thank you that in everything, the disasters, the happy occasions, large and small problems, you can always use people who are regularly dismissed. People considered too old, too young, too inexperienced, too uneducated, too poor, too rich, the wrong religion, the wrong gender. But somehow you use us all Lord because everyone is valued and everyone is needed in the struggle for goodness and justice. And finally we ask you to search each of our hearts. Help us with our personal struggles with envy, jealousy, fear of missing out, fear that everybody else's life is better than ours. Calm and comfort us if we need that. Push us if we need that show us everything that you would have us do and be we feel so small as individuals that we always marvel that you care for us and we are thankful finally send us into the world to do whatever is necessary in the name of the trinity the father the son the holy spirit and let us pray together the prayer taught to us by jesus our father who art in heaven
0: a favela in Brazil, one of the poorest places in the world. And if you ask how her family did it, she said, simple, you just can't own anything that you don't mind walking off. We're going to practice in our own poor way, giving away wealth as the way to peace, as we, in our poor way, follow the poor Christ.